0: Hello, and welcome to the Clinical Care Options Oncology Podcast. I'm your host, Tim Glow. Today's episode features Dr. Scott Flocken from Harvard Medical School in Boston, and Dr. Brian Weiss from Cincinnati Children's Hospital Medical Center in Cincinnati. They will be answering questions posed during a recent live program on neurofibromatosis type 1, or NF1, and plexiform neurofibromas. Topics that will be discussed include the use of whole exome sequencing for diagnosis of NF1, best practice management of asymptomatic patients, testing of family members for NF1, systemic therapy with MEK inhibitors, and supportive care for MEK inhibitor treatment associated acneiform rash. This episode is part of a larger educational program titled State of the art care for patients with neurofibromatosis type 1 and inoperable plexiform neurofibromas. For more information on Dr. Plotkin and Dr. Weiss, along with a link to the complete program, including downloadable slide sets, an expert commentary, and an on demand webcast, please visit the show notes for this episode. Now let's get started and hear what the experts have to say. Thank you. That was really excellent. Um,
1: There is a question, actually, before we start uh, for the diagnosis of NF1. Is whole exome sequencing performed?
2: So that's a great question. And and I'll say that the question is so timely because we're just getting into this uh, area now uh, of molecular analysis, genetic analysis for these pathogenic NF1 variants. I think most of us are using the commercial companies. Uh, and, um, the techniques do differ between companies. I would say that among our international community, we decided not to specify, uh, which genetic analysis was necessary to be done, but it should be validated by the, by the company that's performing it and it should be reliable. So I don't think there's any one specific way to do it, but it has to be certified, obviously CLIA certified in, in the case of the United States.
1: Um, There's another question, another excellent question. What's your advice about following asymptomatic patients and what triggers you to treat?
2: That's a great question. Um, And so I may throw this back to you, Dr. Weiss, uh, as an expert also. Uh, The first axis I think about is something asymptomatic or symptomatic, and the question identified asymptomatic. The second question I ask myself is whether the tumor is growing or not. And oftentimes, I'll follow these tumors periodically with MRI scans. And when I say periodically, it could be once a year, every two years, or even five years. And if a tumor is asymptomatic and not growing, I will not treat that personally. If a tumor is asymptomatic and growing, the next question I think about is, what's the risk? If it's near an airway, um, it's asymptomatic, growing, but near an airway, I'd be likely to consider that. I might present it at our tumor board. If it's asymptomatic growing, but let's say it's in an area where you're not even really worried about it, um, I I might watch it some more. And the reason is we've now done longitudinal studies using full-body MRI. And in adults, there is a significant proportion of individuals who have tumors that spontaneously regress. And the point I want to make is that there's no substitute for good clinical judgment. And we follow these people because sometimes the tumor might grow for a period and then flatten out and not grow or decrease. And I think the trap for most of us is if we fall into the trap of treating every tumor we see or every tiny tumor that's growing but is asymptomatic, we often will give patients more neurologic disability from our surgeries. So that's not a a sharp answer, but I hope that describes some of the thinking that I engage in. I don't know, Brian, if you have a different paradigm user, if that's roughly the same.
1: No, I, it's roughly the same because, you know, the therapies, as you mentioned, are not without risk themselves. And I think balancing that risk of uh, the tumor and its location and the therapies is, you know, what the, what we do as physicians every day. So I would agree. You have to think of that carefully. There's another question about how do you manage the family members and I'm not sure exactly what they're getting at because obviously sometimes the family members also have NF1. I um, wonder so what,
2: that, what that
1: that you screen them for NF1. Well, so I I operate in a somewhat unique uh, environment in that I work with the genetics team, so but really focus on medical therapy for plexiform neurofibromas. So I have a very focused approach. Um, so certainly the genetics team does uh screen family members and often that's not a a genetic test it's just a physical and um and it's typically quite obvious if they have family members that are also of nf1 and then they provide the appropriate care for those family members i don't know if that's about the same i think you operate in a different environment though
2: I do, but it's pretty similar. And I want to double down on something really important you said, which is when I outlined the revised diagnostic criteria, we were very careful to um, point out that just because a, a genetic testing is one of the criteria, we're not recommending it for every person. It is used in very specific circumstances. So I don't want you to leave thinking that every patient needs genetic analysis. For an individual who has a parent with NF1 who has multiple neurofibromas and cafe-au-lait spots, In my patient population, we would not do genetic testing at that point for diagnostic purposes. We may do it for family planning purposes. So please don't go away thinking you have to send genetic testing on everybody because unfortunately, we have to catch up in the United States thinking about insurance coverage for these important issues.
1: Yes, I was just going to mention that too. Like trying to get that covered, I imagine would be really difficult. Yeah. Um, Okay, well, thank you. Those are great questions. I wanted to mention, you know, we we get asked frequently, well, what's the best MEK inhibitor? Which one should I use? And first of all, only selumetinib's FDA approved for patients with NF1 and plexiform neurofibromas. That doesn't mean we haven't tried the other ones as part of clinical trials uh, or even by prescription off label, but you know, nobody knows. So essentially which one's best. Um, They've never been compared head-to-head. The trials have been written sometimes differently in an important way. As an example, all the trials in the NF consortium, which would be binimetinib and myrdimetinib and also cabozantinib, which is not a MEK inhibitor, were written for a rapid readout. So if you didn't have at least 15%, 1, 5% tumor shrinkage in eight months, you were off study. And then if you had at least 15%, you were allowed to continue for 12 months. And if you didn't have 20% by 12 months, you were off study where the selumetinib trial was written to allow you to stay on study as long as you didn't have progressive disease at 12. And so they did allow for a longer readout. It turned out um, that most of the patients that responded, responded by 12 months, but there were subtleties in how those trials were designed. So just to say, we don't know what the best one is. We probably will never know, uh, but we certainly know that Selumetinib is, at least in this country, the easiest to get because it's FDA approved for that indication.
2: Sure. Uh, what do you recommend as far as supportive care for the rash? Okay, so
1: for the acneiform rash seen with mek inhibitors, we typically will start something like a clindamycin gel uh, or lotion for the acneiform rash before starting the selumetinib, and sometimes we do, you know, we'll do that with some slow introduction because that gel by itself can cause skin irritation. So we may start it like once a day for a week or so and then go to twice a day. And then depending on the age of the patient and what their skin looks like before starting selumetinib, we sometimes also start something like doxycycline or minocycline even before starting the rash. It seems like it's easier to prevent than it is to treat once you get it. Um, so we're pretty aggressive and essentially it's like what one would do for bad acne, uh, even if there's no acneiform rash yet.
2: Thank you. And the only thing I'll add to that, there's a whole paper on managing side effects. Uh, the first author is Laura Klessy K-L-E-S-S-E in the oncologist. And there are other ones as well. Uh, and that was, I think late, uh, last year or this year. So there's a reference. I'm gonna take a stab at, at the question here, but I, I may need your help with this one also. What about other uh, pathway inhibitors? So the question is BRAF and uh, I, I I don't know all the data and, and I, I hope Brian will help me with this. I know for BRAF, what I'll say is, most of the inhibitors we have are for mutant BRAF. So the V6, V600E uh, variant. And you'll recall the, 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 in the diagram I showed looking at the relationship between RAS and NF1, neurofibroin is the protein, you know, we we there is no mutant RAF in that. And so therefore, the, the typical BRAF inhibitors are not active uh, in this setting. Now, the question could be made, what about uh, uh, native uh, non-mutant BRAF inhibitors and I guess I don't know enough of that data. And maybe, maybe Brian, you know more about that. Well,
1: I do know that, you know, going way back into the NF time machine, we really thought that's the standard thinking of um, molecular oncologists, for lack of a better word, is you know, you want to target as close to you can as you can to your mutation. And by that measure, RAF inhibitors should have been the Holy Grail there was a small trial at the NCI uh, of serafinib, and actually the patients had so much toxicity primarily pain that they had to stop that trial early one wonders whether we'll come back to that at some point I don't think we will though because it really was not tolerable uh, but that is why we they went sort of one step below that to the To MEK inhibitors, so yeah, they it's been tried. They had significant toxicity, and patients couldn't couldn't tolerate that medication.
2: I'm not aware of any clinical data on ERK inhibitors, so just as a to round it out. There's a question about how do you explain spontaneous regression. I I I tried to do that before, but I'll just say quickly, we see spontaneous regression of multiple tumor types. I can show you images I've taken from my clinic, including optic pathway glioma, which I mentioned plexiform neurofibromas, which we're going to publish soon, I hope. And I've also seen it in a spinal intramedullary tumor, which was not biopsy, but I assume it was some type of glial tumor. And the, the challenge here is we don't biopsy these regressing tumors, and so we don't know. So anything I would say now would be speculation. I do wish we could catch it in a bottle and then make it for patients, but uh, we don't know, we don't know that answer. Thank you for the opportunity to to present this uh, data to you tonight. Yes, thank you.
0: Thank you very much, Dr. Plotkin and Dr. Weiss, and thanks to you, the listeners, for joining us. As a reminder, to view the full program, state-of-the-art care for patients with neurofibromatosis type 1 and inoperable plexiform neurofibromas, and to download the PDF associated with this discussion from the Clinical Care Options website, please click on the link in the show notes. As always, thanks for listening.